Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy, and my co-host, Ashley Stone, is out this week. Today is week three of our weekly podcast series for Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and today's guest is Dr. Victoria Baines. She is currently a research fellow at the Oxford Internet Institute, but she has kicked ass across multiple disciplines, including working with Europol's European Cyber Crime Center. She is also co-host of the Cyber Warrior Princess podcast, which everyone should give a listen to, and you can follow her on Twitter at CyberBaines. But without further ado, let's get into it with Dr. Victoria Baines. George. Hi, Dr. Baines. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? Great. Thank you again for taking the time for today's uh, interview. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed for asking. Um, all right. Well, why don't we get started? Um, yeah. As my research led me to believe, your background is in classics. Um, and I was curious as to how you got on the path from that level of study into where you are now vis-a-vis uh, -vis cybersecurity. Yes. So it's not exactly the classical route into to cybersecurity, right? And it's right. also something that I find is a real conversation killer at parties. <laughs> so, Oh, um, really? Yeah, absolutely. I would have expected so, the opposite. Well, um, I think... Uh, you know, when I when I first told my parents that I wanted to study classical literature at university, uh, I got blank faces. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and and you know, for an international audience, when we talk in the UK about classics, we don't we don't mean the kind of the classical English authors like Jane Austen, etc. We mean Greco-Roman literature. So my PhD is in um, Roman satire, would you believe, and a particular um, gentleman called um, Juvenal, not juvenile, Juvenal, uh -huh. um, who um, lived and worked under um, mainly the Emperor Hadrian, so kind of the start of the second century AD. And you're absolutely right. Um, you're not the first person to have asked me, well, how the heck <laughs> do you get from doing a PhD on that guy um, to working in, in cybersecurity and online safety and, and all of that on geopolitical issues? And um, there is actually, for me, a really logical sequence. Um, I was finishing my PhD. And to be honest with you, after, you know, 10 years in full-time higher education and, you know, the best part of that decade working on this particular guy, um, I thought, well, what next? And actually, I was looking around for opportunities to have a bit more of uh, an impact on society, because much as I love um, taking apart in minute detail texts that are 2,000 years old, and much as I I think now that I'm in my 40s, I see their relevance to today more than ever. At the time, I thought, okay, well, so what? What next? And just like completely by coincidence, I saw an advertisement in my local newspaper um, to be an intelligence analyst in the police. Um, and the first thing I thought to myself was, 
well, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Um, so I, I did a bit of digging. And in the UK, we were introducing a national intelligence model for crime and policing, really kind of, you know, building a separate industry for civilians to work in the police, mm-hmm. doing what I used to disparagingly, disparagingly say was the brain work for police officers, but, you know, really kind of giving an evidence base to how the police responds to crime problems. And that was the whole range of policing, you know, like community problems, drug trafficking, um, sexual offences, and then all the way to cybercrime. And I got that job and I found that actually, even though this should be a very, very different discipline to taking apart ancient texts, that actually I was applying exactly the same research principles, exactly the same communication skills. So I I went into my interview um, for this job and the the point at which I knew this was, you know, going to be something that I was really, really excited about was when they said to me, okay, your your, um, task for the day is to go through this massive pile of mm-hmm. intelligence reports and open source information. You've got 40 minutes. Tell us who you think did it and what you think we need to do about it. And it, it was having that kind of pressure of... It's like a PhD um, on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, this was pre- kind of mass use of search engines Mm -hmm. in the police and things like that. I don't think we even had outward facing computers at the time. So I was given a flip chart (laughs) to present my findings. I wasn't even asked to, you know, to, to do a PowerPoint on this, you know? Um, And I I found that massively exciting, being able to make the connections between the different types of data. And of course, you know, as I'm talking, I'm immediately thinking about the parallels with, cybersecurity, infosec, strategic threat analysis. And so, you know, I, I went from there, I was originally posted to a drugs team in in the county of Surrey in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I was seconded onto a historic child abuse investigation. We've had a, a whole rash of these um, investigations in the UK where um, the police has been looking at um Child abuse offline, so it's very much predating um, the internet and communications technologies in um, children's care homes and correctional facilities from like really the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, which then got me onto uh, the child abuse uh, track, working on combating that, which then got me into what is now the National Crime Agency but was then the Serious Organised Crime Agency in the UK, uh, where I then came to work on online child protection. And then I'm in the broader cyberspace because, you know, we talk about cybersecurity as something that's very specific, don't we? But a lot of politicians and, and policymakers include within that online child protection, payment fraud, and, and all of those things. So from there, I went to Europol and, and started up the um, the threat assessment on what was called internet-facilitated organized crime, but the kind of the cybercrime threat assessments there. Um, then went to Facebook, so a slight change of track, um, working on trust and safety, which is a whole different can of worms <laughs> working right. for a big uh, tech right. company. And then really taking what I experienced from the perspectives of law enforcement, from the perspective of big tech, 
Um, but also I'm on the advisory board of InHope, which is the International Association of Internet Hotlines working on uh, combating illegal material. And being able to see it from different perspectives meant it was time for me to step out and start doing some independent research. So that's where I am at the moment. Um, I'm currently a visiting research fellow at Oxford University at their Department for International Developments. And I'm really looking at that, you know, that space between in cybersecurity where governments and tech companies and other actors are perhaps at odds, mm -hmm. where actually if they work together, it could be much more useful and much more impactive. Interesting. And I will admit that I drafted that first question as a bit of a loaded question. <clears throat> it strikes me that, yes, the analytical skills of a classicist are well suited to um, the, you know, going through massive reams of uh, electronic information. But it also um, is kind of a historical return uh, to where we came from. So I, I will say that with the guests that we've had on the show, a lot of them don't have your so-called typical background to cybersecurity. I, I think if you just go essentially through the 90s, there was no traditional path. Maybe there is now. Um, but, uh, you know, the very first spy organizations, the OSS in the US and um, uh, MI5 and some others, they actively recruited the um, put upon uh, liberal arts majors because they knew that they did have these skill sets that they needed, you know, to go through massive reams of behavioral information. Um, just they needed people who were used to being in a library and trying to synthesize information very quickly. So I think that's, it's an interesting kind of return to form, I think. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And, um, you know, one of the things we used to joke about at, at university um, particularly because classics was a subject where, which was heavily associated with MI5 and MI6 in particular because of the foreign language skills as well, um, was that if you didn't get tapped on the shoulder <laughs> yeah, to become yeah. an intelligence agent, <laughs> there was something wrong. wrong with you. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And But I think this raises a really, really important point about rec recruitment. And one of the things that... Um, uh, listeners of uh, the the Cyber Warrior Princess podcast, which I've got to kind of drop in there as a plug, otherwise, otherwise my co-conspirator Becky Pinkard will never forgive me. Um, but one of the things we bang on about, or I particularly bang on about, um, is our fixed our fixation with getting young people into STEM subjects. You know, we are fixated. We we say we're going to fill the cybersecurity skills gap by getting people to do science and technology and engineering and mathematics. And mm -hmm. yes, I think that's absolutely right and proper, but we shouldn't be exclusive about that because as, as you rightly point out, there are a bunch of us who are quite experienced in the industry now who didn't have those backgrounds. And if we if we exclude them, if we say to them, oh, well, if you're a psychology major, oh, well, if you're a, a you know, an arts major, there's no place for you in cybersecurity because you need to have a technical background. I think we're going to lose something going forward. I think we're going to lose the people who can paint pictures, who can go to the board and, you know, and, and the non-executives and draw analogies to them who can make some of this technical information accessible. And I'm not saying that people from scientific and technical backgrounds, backgrounds don't do that or can't do that. 
But why waste a valuable resource by saying that people aren't sufficiently technical in a traditional sense? Right. It strikes me as unnecessarily reductive. It's, um, I mean, taken to the logical extreme, it it's sort of like a, a brave new world where you just have these segments of society. Here, you, the scientific person, you pursue this track, you know, for the rest of your life. You, the artist, you're relegated to this track. Um, and, and and for me, that feels like a retrograde step, right? Yes. So if we if we look at the kind of the mega trends of employment, the emergence of the gig economy, the emergence of portfolio careers, it's really only in the last thirty to forty years that people haven't been tied to doing one very narrow thing for mm-hmm. life. So I think if we do have this opportunity now, we should you know we should give particularly the next generation of cybersecurity specialists the flexibility to be able to come from different backgrounds and put their different skills to good use. And I think as we learn more about some of the challenges that face us, whether it's um, you know disinformation or influence operations down to what we now have learned about what went into the user design for our phones, whether it was infinite scroll, something as simple as making the notifications badge red, which is kind of an alert trigger in the human mind. Like there were skills brought to bear and are continuing to be brought to bear that are not simply, you know, network systems um, or uh, quote unquote hard cyber skills. So you would need to confront those challenges with a similar skill set. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, gosh, I'm certainly not the first person in the world to um, remind people of the human element to cybersecurity. And, you know, there's people have been working on social engineering for a very, very long time. But I do think we still neglect this massively. And I, I wonder also, at the risk of being slightly controversial, I wonder also, to what extent the cybersecurity industry, you know, vendors have contributed to a feeling of helplessness amongst ordinary internet users and small and medium-sized businesses. Because, you know, if you can't understand the problem and you can't understand the solution, then it's not within your grasp or it doesn't feel within your grasp to be able to take remedial steps um, but it's back to that, you know, that age old digital hygiene point. We need more people to wash their hands. Yeah, right. Yes. Um, well, I want to turn to an uncomfortable subject only because your area of expertise uh, mitigating um, risks to children online uh, coincides with, I think about a week ago, the New York Times uh, came out with a very long and um, disturbing article on the harrowing increase, exponential increase in the number of abuse images being reported by the tech firms. In other words, the number of images that are being produced has exploded since 1998 to the point where law enforcement is underwater. They can't keep up. Um, And it's just, I just wonder where can we go from here? Is it the article points out to adequate resourcing Um, It points out, I thought, interestingly, to the idea that it's just such an uncomfortable topic that people don't even want to consider it in legislative debate. Um, So it's like the resources aren't being allocated because they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, and I think all of those points are are, are really valid. And actually, I 
I spoke to the guys from the New York Times a few weeks ago when they were preparing to, to write this article, and I brought up a number of challenges, right? So, um, it, you know, we always focus on the tech companies in this situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, full disclosure, I've worked for a tech company, but I've also worked on the other side of, of law enforcement and been on the receiving end of, of that flood. And um, what I would say is... I, I'm astounded, I think, by um, regulators and government's um, kind of tactic here, which is time and again, and you'll see this in the mainstream media as well, it will be about tech companies needing to do more. Tech companies must do more. Now, let's unpack that. One of the reasons why we've seen a huge increase in the number of images being reported, and we have to, again, unpack even that statement and say it's the number of images, not new instances of child abuse. And some of these images are circulated almost like memes, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So one image will be circulated thousands and thousands of times by people in a particular country who think it's funny and don't realize it's a criminal offense, for instance. So it's all, all of that as well is included in those numbers, as well as there being some seriously dangerous people who are producing new material from children who've not been abused or identified before, right? Mm -hmm. So within that landscape, absolutely tech companies have a part to play in finding that material and reporting it. And one of the reasons why those numbers have gone up is because the big US tech companies have done just that. And they've used this technology, photo DNA, um, to identify images, match them pixel by pixel with a list of known child abuse images through kind of hash matching. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, so in a sense, we've got that exponential increase because the tech companies, what they've done, it's been a victim of its own success. But of course, the the strategic knock-on effect is that that's bringing more cases to light where people have either successfully shared these images or um, attempted to upload those images. And that's also included in those numbers. Now, in the US, that reporting to law enforcement is mandatory. It's a statutory reporting obligation that all of those big tech firms have to report to the, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. What I think is really fascinating to me is that that, that, that mandatory reporting obligation does not apply in every country in the world. So uh. if we're thinking about some of the big platforms like TikTok that are becoming really popular globally, um, they're not housed in the US. So they're not, and, and I, I, you know, full disclosure, I don't know what their reporting procedures are. So this is not to pass any judgment on them. But legislatively, we've got a greater protection in the US because we're bringing more of those cases to light. Right. Now, if we're then saying that law enforcement can't cope, that's a different question, right? Because all we're saying is that the, the tech companies are doing their jobs to keep this stuff off their platform. Should it be the tech company's jobs to stop people being into this stuff? I would argue probably not. I'd say that's the community and that's society's responsibility. And I'm I'm a trustee of an organization in the UK that runs um, self-help programs for sex offenders and people who have a sexual interest in children. And what we know from our research is that there is a massive demand for people who are struggling with this sexual interest and struggling with these urges 
But to your earlier point, George, you are absolutely right. Because we don't want to talk about this stuff and we don't want to talk about the fact that, you know, recent research has shown that somewhere between one and 10% of the adult male population has a sexual interest in children. That's that's a horrible thing to uh, have to confront, right? Yes. Yes. And I, not, yeah. And I think, yeah. yes, to your to your point that, you know, technology is rarely uh, good and evil in and of itself. And I don't want to become like a objective apologist or something, but I, I do think that to place all of the blame on the technology is just an abdication of society's responsibility to confront it because, you know, yes, like credit cards can be useful and then they can also torpedo the economy, but it's not the, the plastic card in and of itself that creates that problem. Right. Um, so, and, and, yeah. and to your question about where can we go from here? I did a piece of research, um, last year mapping, the global response to online child sexual exploitation and abuse. And when you map all the functions that you need, and then you map that against what exists, there are some obvious gaps. Mm -hmm. So yes, we have a law enforcement response, but has, as has been highlighted by the, the New York Times, you know, you can't get enough police to deal with that volume of, of information. So, you know, technology can help perhaps um, triage the worst cases that you need to get to first. And that's certainly something that, that law enforcement, you know, employs it for prioritization. And also something um, to be said for the turnover and care that's necessary for those officers. I mean, we, we treat them as if they're, you know, these enforcers and they're not affected by this material, just like, um, the, all the major platforms, Facebook included the people who have to review flagged material, see just epic amounts of terrible stuff right and they have to right. then go home and live with that um so absolutely and 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 the i think resilience has become certainly much more of a watchword both in law enforcement and in tech companies and in the hotlines and helplines that are responding to these kinds of issues but certainly when i first started out 10 years ago, we were only just starting to think about that because we'd seen some of the side effects of, you know, police officers who couldn't work this stuff anymore right. or police officers who suddenly got burnout because they were looking at, you know, thousands of images for, for eight hours a day. But when you look at um, what we, we are relatively good at, you know, responding to or the responses that we have been much more prepared to, to put in place, it's tech reporting. It's um, providing education programs for children and young people. It is um, providing at least some law enforcement coverage in many countries, although, again, I would say, you know, not all countries, even that have signed up to the international legal instruments, have got specialist online child abuse units. You know, what we're really missing is that support for offenders and potential offenders. And clearly, you're not going to be able to tackle the problem effectively if you're only picking the things that you feel more comfortable about. Right. So that would be, you know, that's my big suggestion that I'm I'm fairly vocal about in, in most arena is we absolutely need to treat people who have a sexual interest in children as human beings who may want help. Now, if they don't want help and they're sadistic and they're psychopaths, different matter. Right. But 
if they are people who are genuinely struggling and would like to not harm a child, then why wouldn't we treat them with human dignity just like we would everybody else? Yes, and I I think that that goes to a similar turn of the tide in how, at least here in the U.S., we view addiction, right? So, you know, three decades of the war on drugs did a lot to just jail people who used drugs but didn't really solve the drug problem. Um, and so now turning to, to treatment and drug courts that uh, offer uh, a way that's more rehabilitative um, is having a, is a, having a better impact. Um, but I wanted, so similar, so you mentioned working with Europol and I think there's some similarity here. So Europol just released um, last week, it's internet organized crime threat assessment for the year. Um, and there is a lot in that report about organized crime contributing both to uh, child abuse imagery, but also a huge portion of the report is based around cybercrime, very detailed and you know card skimming, payment fraud, stuff like that. And I think in the popular imagination, uh, most people think of cybercrime as either lone wolf hackers on dark web forums or hacktivist groups or just generally quote unquote computer people. Um, what do you see from your experience that explains this evolution of organized crime turning to cybercrime as, as a revenue stream? So I think this works two ways, actually. There's a, it's an interesting dynamic between organized crime and, and cybercrime. And, and I think the first caveat is that when Europol refers to organized crime, they refer to a piece of um, EU, European Union legislation that, that defines organized crime as two or more people. Ah, okay. So we think of organized crime, we think of mafia structures, we think of really hierarchical criminal groups. And that's at perhaps one end of the spectrum. But at the other end of the spectrum, we've got people on, you know, darknet forums who suddenly swarm together to build a particular piece of malware, distribute a particular piece of malware, cash out whatever, mm -hmm. you know, data is is compromised, etc. So funnily enough, I wrote the very first internet organized crime threat assessment for, for Europol. And, and because that was written initially for policymakers, I had to do a kind of flow chart, if you like, a, a very, very poorly um, drawn Visio chart showing how a cybercrime business model could work, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's much more fluid. It's much more like the hacktivist or the the lone wolf um, type of business model, that you you only engage with other people when you need something from somebody else that you can't do. Um, like an opportunistic in, economy, you know, just absolutely, moving absolutely. Now, now on that spectrum between the really hierarchical mafia groups and the the swarming cyber criminals the opportunistic in between those you've got all different types of of um criminal groups that may be based on family ties or clan ties or um religious grounds in some cases um and a lot of your drug trafficking gangs and your human trafficking gangs will be somewhere in there mm -hmm. what we've certainly seen i would say in the last 10 years since i was writing these assessments is more of an overlap where there is money to be made. So I, I think, you know, I think it's unlikely that your old school mafia groups 
are suddenly going to start coding, right? Right. That's a massive but, upskilling uh, but endeavor. But we're certainly seeing um, an uptake in use of cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. because, you know, it, money laundering looks, looks a lot more secure and a lot more anonymous if you're, you know, using cryptocurrency than if you're having to try and place cash somewhere or you're having to have an offshore account to to launder proceeds. Then, of course, we've got the overlap between illicit commodity trafficking and the cyber criminal underground, if you like, the underground economy um, on the dark web. So while we know that there are specialisms in darknet forums and that if you're into drugs, you're not necessarily going to go into the credit card one, you're all still circulating in that, you know, that broadly defined space where you wouldn't necessarily come into contact. Um, so I think I, I think there is a greater overlap where there's money to be made. I don't, uh, you know, at the moment, I would say that your more traditional organized crime groups are not going to start making cybercrime their core activity. But mm-hmm. then I wouldn't I wouldn't stake money on it because one of the things I've I've focused on certainly more and more in the last 10 years is looking for some of those disruptors that could change how we have to fight cybercrime in the future. Right. It strikes me as a a very natural evolution as law enforcement technology gets better at mitigating real world crime, so-called. It seems easier to, to go into avenues where it's harder to apply that technology, right? It's it's easier to interdict like a sh- shipment of drugs, physical drugs, than it is to maybe connect all of the dots before a certain type of credit card malware is released or something like that. But, but to that point, actually, what we've certainly seen is a lot of illicit commodity retail moving online, right? Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to sell something online, you know, ship it than it is to stand on a street corner. Right. Um, you're not showing out quite as much. I mean, there's a really, really interesting dynamic that when I was at Europol, I really wanted to be able to test, but there was always something else that I was supposed to be working on. And that is, you know, can somebody, this is this is a PhD up for grabs, really. Can somebody map the downturn in armed robberies in certain countries with an increase in cybercrime. And is that just going to be a descriptive correlation? Is it coincidental? Or, you know, have certain types of offender gone some way to moving online? Because actually robbing a bank is really, really risky. Yes, and like a very, very high risk, very low reward. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I wonder, you know, has there been displacement to online crime because it seems to be less risky and more anonymous. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, people. If you're looking for a PhD <laughs> topic, that is something to look to into. I'm willing to be a supervisor. There you go. Um, and so it also strikes me that in terms of law enforcement cooperation, we see a lot of reports of um, you know the FBI working with Europol, working with uh, Interpol, working with other organizations to take down either um, – financial services hacking units or to interdict against um, ch- child or pedophilia rings, stuff like that. That all seems uh, easy to understand because there's this general agreement on what constitutes crime in those fields. But what is 
increasingly less clear is how to apply standards to data privacy or how data is used. For example, here in the U.S., we have the California law coming into place. We have GDPR. And so it just strikes me that there's this juxtaposition between applying frameworks that were built on the notion of nation states that have boundaries to a boundaryless space. In crime, it seems a little bit easier to apply on this question of data privacy, not so much because I think it comes down to values and culture, which is harder to to negotiate. So I thought given your uh, work with Facebook and with other um, overlapping fields with respect to data privacy, where do you see us heading in terms of both privacy issues and monetization of personal data? My optimistic take on this, and I am an idealist, so I'm constantly disappointed by uh, events in the world, Um, but my optimistic take on this is that increasingly GDPR will come to be seen as the the international standard, simply because, and and, you know, we saw this, it was just starting to become a consideration when I was um, working at Facebook, that because the the requirements of GDPR apply to any country that serves EU citizens, uh, any company, sorry, that serves EU citizens, then that's pretty much every global company. So regardless of of where you're housed, you're having to comply with GDPR. Mm -hmm. So I think, I would like to think that organically this will come to be seen as the standard operating procedure for people's data. And, And I quite like GDPR because... You know, it encourages individual citizens to be informed and take control and give their consent. And while I'm pretty certain we're not there yet as to, you know, making sure that every individual Internet user understands how their data is being used, the focus on transparency and accountability means that we are at least in a position to ask how our data is being used, to ask not to have our data used in a certain way. Um, And I think giving those rights back to the citizen can be the only way that we do it for the future. Now, you you touched on national sovereignty, and this is one of the issues that I am really, really interested in and that I'm I'm doing a, a bit of work on at the moment, is looking at how the global community and tech companies and nation states have different ideas about data protection and privacy, but also about what's permissible uh, speech and what's permissible on the internet. Now, Mm -hmm. we'll leave that content piece to one side, but what I was continuously astounded by um, in Facebook, uh, and, and when I was working at Facebook, was the extent to which countries were really quite keen to pull in different directions about what a you know about what privacy constituted, mm-hmm. um, and so GDPR for me is a is a real step ahead. Um, that said, you can see from some countries that they you know probably wouldn't be able to sign up to GDPR because surveillance is much more of a priority to them. And, you know, we have countries with questionable human rights regimes for whom GDPR is just not going to fly. Right. 
I think, yes, to your point, I think GDPR has at least started um, that coupled with a couple of scandals. Cambridge Analytica, for example, has mm. gotten people asking questions that I don't think they even knew to ask a few years ago because it's taking the culture quite some time to catch up with the technology, right? We just opened our phones and they were these like magic devices that we wanted to use. And we did, it didn't even, con- I think we didn't even conceive of the fact that when you are interacting with a website that you are transmitting part of yourself and valuable information into some cloud-based server over which you have no transparency or control. And so I think, yes, to your point that legislation is now beginning to at least give people pause long enough to ask certain questions, which I think will be a, a market force that has to be reckoned with. Right. And, and there was some fantastic, um, footage on the UK news. I don't know if this happened in, in other countries, but the BBC, um, sat down with a bunch of young people and showed them, you know, downloaded their Facebook archive mm-hmm. and showed them exactly what they'd shared with Facebook. And they were completely astounded at the amount of data. Now, for me, my obvious answer is, well, duh, yeah, of course you have. But that clearly isn't immediately obvious to everyone. Um, and I think as a global community, all sectors have a, you know, a job to do to make sure um, that people do understand what the trade-off is here. I mean, I think long-term, we are still going to accept convenience over privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I'm happier with that trade-off and I'm happier with other people engaging in that trade-off so long as they understand what's happening. Yes, and I think, you know, there's there's just no question that data will continue to be a valued commodity. Um, I'm very intrigued by legislation that was introduced in the U.S. Senate, um, I think jointly by uh, Senator Crowley of Missouri and our very own Virginia Senator Mark Warner, which would push tech companies to disclose how the data is being monetized. So there's methodology there and also uh, articulate at any given time how much your data is worth. So I could, you know, open a field and understand like how is it being relayed either to third parties or being leveraged by that particular platform and then what is the value of that data i think at least that level of transparency some people are still going to be willing to say you know google you can have my location data because i find it really convenient when i search for something you're giving me the results of the you know the pet food store two blocks from here rather than one off of a vpn in in st louis (laughs) Um, but yes, I just think to your point, the greater transparency will help educate the end user. But we may also move to a model where um, the monetization of that data creates new frameworks, new ways to to tra- maybe people are have more control over how that data is traded. Right, and and because I'm I've always got one eye on the future. You know that we've just seen a a flurry, haven't we, in the last few days of stories about, you know, massively intrusive apps with really, really sensitive data, um, seemingly sharing their data or asking for things that we perhaps would never have considered to share in the last, you know, or 10 years ago. Um, And I'm thinking in particular of, you know, some of the um, kind of women's health and monthly cycle apps that appear to be sharing their data on on women's menstrual cycles right um, just appalling to me 
<laughs> and well, and then this, I think there was another one that's cropped up in the last couple of days, um, encouraging people to, uh, you know, or encouraging listening into sexual activity, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which you know, it seems really quite private to me. Um, but then, you know, taking it out of the the intimacy sphere, um, many many more connected medical devices. We've got people. Um, you know, hacking their own bodies and tinkering with themselves and, you know, uh, implanting sensors in themselves in a way that we haven't seen, you know, previously. And so I, you know, I do wonder, you know, to, to what extent users are volunteering information that otherwise they would expect to be kept confidential, you know, locked in a medical filing cabinet. Indeed. Yeah. And again, you just didn't know that me using this convenient app on my phone was, you know, transmitting, archiving, filing that data uh, in ways that I hadn't even considered. Because, again, all that I have in front of me is this tiny glowing screen and no visibility into how it's connected to these other systems. And and to that point, I completely understand in that context, why regulators and legislators are concerned about aggregation of data by monopolies. Mm-hmm. So, if and, and I mean, Google is the obvious example, but I'm not singling them out. You know, it, the user needs to understand that their map data and their Gmail data and, um, you know, everything else that is Google owned is in a position to be synthesized and synchronized and and that that builds a much richer picture than having all of these services separately and to be honest i think if you ask the 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 man or woman in the street most of the time they don't realize that facebook owns instagram and whatsapp you know right so and i I think some of those discussions not specifically about those companies but you know probing further to what extent data is aggregated between different apps that people use absolutely well i think that's all the time we have for today thank you very much again for taking time out of your afternoon uh to be on the phone with us It's been a genuine pleasure. I've really enjoyed that. Thanks, George. Absolutely. And uh, we will give yet another shout out to the Cyber Warrior Princess podcast, um, our sisters and comrades in arms uh, with respect to cybersecurity and podcasting. Thank you very much for that. Much appreciated. All right. Well, you have a good rest of your day, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thanks, George. Bye now. And that wraps up week three of Cybersecurity Awareness Month here at The Zero Hour. Once again, I am grateful to Dr. Victoria Baines for taking the time to talk with us. Be sure to tune into her podcast, which is Cyber Warrior Princess, and to follow her on Twitter at Cyber Baines. All right, be sure to tune in next week when our guest will be Renee Deresta, who is the 2019 Mozilla Fellow in Media, Misinformation, and Trust She's one of the lead authors on a report to the Senate Intelligence Committee, which informed their final findings about the 2016 Russian interference into our presidential elections. Very excited to have her. But until then, our deepest thanks to Abby Bruce for sound design and production, Matias Cephaledi for our theme music, and we will see you next week. This is Zero Hour, signing off. Zero Hour.